0: there already, um, there's a line in a, a famous Christmas song that you may have already heard by this time of year, uh, it's from uh, Handel's uh, Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus, uh, Maybe you've, how many of you have heard that already at some point uh, this season, yeah, okay, um, it's amazing how much scripture we can smuggle into uh, familiar things like Christmas carols in our culture, right, and the Handel's Messiah is certainly one of those things. One of the lines that always uh, seems to get me when I hear it is a line that actually is a quote from Revelation 11, verse 15, when it says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That line just fires my imagination every time I hear it. What will it be like to hear those words? The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Now, the kingdom of the world is the kingdom of our Lord in a sense. We know that, right? This is His property. This is His possession. And yes, He's here in a sense. It is where He's working uh, His plans out. And yet, there's a difference between having rightful ownership of something, and taking full possession of it, right? And so one day, the kingdom of this world will become, in its fullest and complete sense, the kingdom of our Lord, in every way. But for now, men and women, we scrape by, and we manipulate, and we even murder to get a bigger slice of the kingdom of this world. And relationships are strained under pressure, and injustices are common, and More disastrous fires break out, and governments continue to fail, and leaders use their power to serve themselves. Clearly, this world is not yet possessed in this way uh, by our Lord. And there have been times in history where there's kind of a pendulum swing of hope that this is the time now, finally, where where we're going to get it, right? And we're going to finally understand how to maintain peace and progress and one of these was after the disastrous effects of World War I and the League of Nations was formed to accomplish the simple task of maintaining world peace, right? <laughs> and even as they put together the documents to maintain the international organization, they bickered and squabbled and fought over different questions like, should we have a standing army? And how do we approach racial inequality? And to what degree should we disarm? And how does all this really work? And it was only a few years before the flimsiness of that effort was exposed with the breaking out of another war. And so as we live in the kingdom of this world, we wait for the kingdom of our Lord. And yet, while we wait, we can kind of become pessimistic and negative because progress is so easily lost, isn't it? It feels like we're constantly backsliding in some way. So how do we stay sharp? And how do we live in the kingdom of this world with the hope that this world will indeed become the kingdom of God? And where do we get progress that's not going to backslide or slip or what's where we can actually grip progress? And we're going to see as we think about Advent in the book of Micah this morning, that it is possible to live in the kingdom of this world confident that it's the kingdom of our Lord. There's a way to do that. And a lot like last week, where we had some dramatic opposites, again, in chapters 3 and 4, we see things that couldn't be more different from one another. Chapter 3 is one way, and chapter 4 is another way. Chapter 3 is the world that we're more familiar with, the world that kind of depresses and is under sin. But chapter 4 is the kingdom of our Lord that's described when he comes and returns, and it's a picture that inspires. And so we're able to live faithfully here and now in the kingdom of this world because we know that God will take possession of it one day. We look forward to that in the book of Micah. Would you stand with me, if you're able, uh, for the reading of God's Word? Um, Micah is an unfamiliar place in Scripture, and so I thought we would just read all of it. If you're not able to stand for the whole thing, the reason we stand is, is just to show reverence for the Word of God, and you can do that by sitting down uh, as well. So if you need to do that, if this gets too long... Uh, That's fine. But here is God's word to us in Micah chapter 3 and 4. Here's what it says. And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil. Who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones. Who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them. And break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time, because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore, it shall be night to you, without vision and darkness to you, without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. It shall come to pass in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths." For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished, the pain that seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let her raise gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord. Their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. You can be seated. Let's start with the point. The point of this passage is this though Israel is being led to her demise by selfish and corrupt leaders, we saw that in chapter 3. God will one day restore her as a place where the law is taught, where justice is done, and where the downtrodden are exalted. You notice that in these chapters, it goes from the darkest dark to the lightest light. The imagery of the chapters is intentional. It's to stir us, right? Chapter 3 has all these disturbing images of these cannibalistic leaders, an unresponsive God. Darkness and distortion and crookedness and blood. And it's basically showing us that Israel is headed downhill. But then chapter four has images that inspire these nations streaming in hunger for learning, teachers feeding fairness and prosperity and, and peace. There's this picture of a man under a vine and under his own tree, kind of a picture of contentment. Justice is served. Things are looking so up for Israel in chapter four. And this is the point. The point is in the contrast. It's in the difference. So let's look at these a little more closely. Let's look at this dark, the darkest dark here in Israel's downhill demise in chapter 3. You'll notice that Micah targets the leaders of Israel. So in verse 1, Hear you, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Verse 5, it's addressed to the prophets. Verse 9 again, to the heads of the house. God has a bone to pick with Israel's leaders. These are the court officials. They're the prophets. They're the priests, the heads of the families. And there's two things that he's mainly angry at. One, they were misrepresenting him. They're misrepresenting God. And two, they were serving themselves. They were misrepresenting God and they were serving themselves. You see, God's officials were supposed to be like God, right? So... Uh, The judges were supposed to judge like God would judge. And the prophets were supposed to speak in the the words that God told them to say. And the priests were supposed to be kind of the go-betweens between God and man. These leaders, they were supposed to be an extension of God's protection and God's justice and God's mercy. One person wrote, Israel's safety net against injustice broke. That's what happened. We see these judges... In verses 1 through 4 and also in 9 through 10, where they're doing the opposite. They're hating good and they're loving evil. Now, you remember from last week, there are people who were kind of taking advantage, uh, land barons, you could say, of people who are less well-off, and they would come in and kind of force them and manipulate them and grab their land from them. And normally what happens when people do that in societies, there's kind of a way to stop that with the judicial system, Right? So people can try to rip each other off, but then they go to court, and supposedly, in an ideal world, it gets resolved. But the problem with this is that this judicial system of the day was just as corrupt as the people who were stealing the land. And so they worked together and preyed on the sheep of Israel. It says in verse 9, not only do they not do justice, but they detest it. They twist what's straightforward and they build the city on the backs of those who are oppressed with blood and with iniquity. But then these prophets in verses uh, 5 through 8 are also uh, a problem as well. Now it's not a problem that they receive gifts or payment. Uh, Elisha and other prophets receive gifts from people as a way that God provided for them. That's not the issue. But the problem was... Was that the amount of cash that people brought determined the prophecy that they received? So people show up with you know pocketfuls of cash of the prophet, and he's like, oh, "I'm discerning good things for you, right?" <laughs> and there's a little not much cash, then well, sorry, you're out of luck. And that was literally how they would prophesy, abuse this office where the Lord would communicate things to them before, but increasingly it became about themselves. And in contrast to that, we see in verse 9, I'm sorry, in verse 8, when Micah says, but as for me, and we see the difference. He's filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might. He's going to say what God tells him to say no matter what happens. Because it's not about the response that you get when you're a prophet. One commentator says, the land baron's grapes of materialism, were fermented by the yeast of corrupt magistrates, sped up by the sugar and heat of the false prophets' perverse messages. The prophets cheered the cannibals on so long as they got their fair share of the chopped up bones. These people were working in cahoots for injustice and against the will of God. They were misrepresenting God and they were serving themselves at the expense of the people. You think, well, how do these leaders think that they're going to get away with that? look at verse 11 it explains the corrupt practices and it says yet they lean on the lord meaning they they're trusting that they're going to be protected in a certain way what does it say is not the lord in the midst of us no disaster shall come upon us we're in jerusalem for goodness sakes This is God's city, right? Listen to Psalm 48. This is probably what their confidence was in, which allowed them to be bold in this corruption. Psalm 48, 1 through 8, says this. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded, they were in panic, and they took to flight. Trembling To hold of them there, anguishes as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. And you almost get the sense that these leaders think that because they're in the middle of Jerusalem, they're safe. Disaster would never come here. Doesn't that sound a lot like the Pharisees? We're sons of Abraham. We're insulated. We're protected. We're different. We're on the VIP list. It's the thinking behind these corrupt leaders. Friends, make no mistake, there is no favoritism with God. None. None. His judgments make no exceptions and his law doesn't bend. It doesn't matter if you are a Jew reciting the Old Testament in the center of the temple in the middle of Jerusalem or if your dad was a pastor and you remember every Awana verse from every single week as you were a kid. That doesn't matter. His judgments are the same because his judgments are based on his character, not on ours. Amen. And so his judgments are unflinching there equal there's even uh, an even keel to them they apply equally every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable to god roman says in the same way but these people are presuming on their security and it's just leading them downhill well what's the impact of these corrupt leaders taking this false sense of security well it's leading the people away from god This is the real devastating part. If you look at verse uh, 4, then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. God plugs his ears to their prayers. Proverbs 21.13 says, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. And God not only plugs his ears, but he stops speaking to these prophets. In verses 6 and 7, God's voice is getting more and more distant. More and more distant until finally it says, there is no answer from God. Now that, these things might not seem like a big deal, but this is probably the worst news that you can receive. God won't hear you. God won't speak to you. This is what distinguishes our God from every idol in the Bible, right? Think back to Exodus. Remember what happened after the people committed the sin of the golden calf and committed idolatry? God says in Exodus 33:3, "...go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you're a stiff-necked people." Basically, carry on, but I'm not going with you. And you know what the response is? It says, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. Later in the same chapter, Moses says to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Again, he's talking about the promised land, right? We don't want to go if you're not going to be with us. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Listen to this. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? God, your presence is what makes us different. In Deuteronomy 4, he's reflecting on the same thing Moses says, and he says in verses 7 and 8, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? In other words, there's no one like our God because he hears us and he talks to us. And here the judgment on this people is saying that is going to stop. It reminds me of Amos 8.11 when it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they're tolerating this, and so the Lord is distancing himself from them. And now they're becoming more like the prophets of Baal than the people of Israel. And as Israel is headed downhill, we hear the final crash and thud in verse 12. It's a big therefore. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Now we think of a wooded house in the mountains as like being a luxurious thing. But what this is saying is that Jerusalem, the center of God's activity, is going to be like a vineyard. It's going to be like a field. It's going to be like an abandoned house up in the mountains that wild animals have taken over. It's going to be that empty and that destroyed. That's the judgment that's coming. So that is the kingdom of this world, right? That's Micah 3. It's depressing. Can you see some similarities in our time, in our day, just the rampant injustices and things going on? Can you identify, at least in part, with Micah chapter 3 and the world that you live in here? Well, as depressing as chapter 3 is, then you get to chapter 4. And it's almost shocking at how different it is. Because it, now it's talking about Israel's renowned restoration He kind of fast forwards to a future time and he says, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Well, what are those latter days? It's not when they return from exile because there's kind of an eternal sense of what's going on. In verse 5 it says, we'll walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And and a a rebuilt temple and some things put back together uh, isn't uh, the fullness of what's being described here. This is a, a time when the Lord returns and he establishes his kingdom. And Micah's description of this coming kingdom would have just been so received by the people who just heard chapter 3. Can you imagine how, how excited they would be to hear chapter 4? I mean, here's five things about this kingdom that we see in chapter 4. Obviously, we can't cover every verse of thing here. But we notice first that the city isn't abandoned anymore, but it's world-renowned. It says in verse 1, the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains that shall be lifted up above the hills. No more shame, no more disgrace. This is a prominent place now that Jerusalem has. Amazing. The second thing, the nations are seeking after God there in verse 2. Now Micah has just described how the core of Israel's culture has been corrupted and, uh, and it's sinning, right? There's no hunger for God. There's no desire for it. And here, there is such a hunger for God that people from other nations are streaming into Jerusalem to find him. It's amazing. They've, even though these leaders have abandoned the law, there will be a day in Jerusalem when the word of the law will go forward and people will just feed and feed and feed and feed on it. Third thing is that justice is done. If you look in 3 through 5 and even in verse 8, it's an incredible picture where there's a complete lack of justice in Israel during Micah's time, but it's totally reversed. And some representative, somewhere, some way, somehow, is ruling everyone everywhere. So that nations are so confident of the peace that's been accomplished that they're taking their weapons and they're beating them into more useful things. This is worldwide peace. There's contentment. Don't you just want to be that guy sitting under his vine, under his fig tree in verse 4? I mean, what a different picture. Total contentment, no fear, peace. And fear has been overruled by this justice that somebody somehow, some way brought. And this is a totally different thing. Notice too that the fourth, that the overlooked are gathered in verses 6 and 7. So the lame, are, they've been a sheep that are kind of wandered off and they're limping back. They've been displaced or they've been afflicted. It even says, whom I have afflicted, meaning probably sent into exile and disciplined. That God's going to take those people who he cast out and he's going to regather them together. as a part of his family. He's going to assemble, assemble of them again. And make them who were cast off into a strong nation. God doesn't leave anybody behind. It's an amazing picture. And last, the fifth thing is that the enemies of Israel are crushed by Israel itself. Verses 11-13 through 13 are kind of this ironic scene where God's enemies are gathering around to watch the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's actually God's way of gathering His enemies so that He can judge them and destroy them. And he uses Israel to do so. So where they started off in this danger and in this exile and in this place, and now they're the tool, they're the ones who are going to be used to bring about God's vengeance on his enemies. That's something. Now, when you hear those five five things after hearing chapter 3, isn't that something you want? Isn't that a kingdom that you long for? With justice like this and peace like this and contentment like this? For God is pursued and found? It's an incredible description of what the kingdom of God is like. So, this is a tale of two cities, right? And chapter 4 couldn't be any different than chapter 3. And so there's this question that rises up, which is, well, this, this looks great, Micah. Like, I'm glad that there will be a time that Jerusalem is like this. But who's going to do it? I mean, you've seen how bad it is. How in the world is this going to work? When is this going to happen? When is this new Jerusalem going to form? How could Jerusalem go from being corrupt and unjust to the core to being this light to the nations? How could that even happen? Imagine if someone came in, let's say, a consultant came in to talk to the city of Santa Rosa and said, I know about the disasters that have come in and I, I've heard about the extent of the damage. And what if this consultant claimed to have the perfect plan for how the, how the city should look in the future? There's a lot of discussion about that, right? How is this going to reshape the city? What should get rebuilt and what shouldn't? What if this consultant claimed to be able to provide reasonable contracting bids that could get community-wide support for them across the board? What if he had inns with the federal and state uh, government officials so that all the red tape he can cut right through? What if he claimed to knowing the steps of restoring health and environmental standards that are the concern of so many? What if he's an expert in mental health and he has people appointed for that to deal with issues of depression and of the surrounding homelessness? You might be skeptical of that consultant, Right? Because there are so many complexities to restoring our city. It's so complicated, right? Now, you take that little local instance. Now, that's not a little thing to us. I'm not saying it like it's not a big deal. But you take that restoration promise and you multiply that to the point where there's a global restoration of every square inch on planet Earth, and you see that the Messiah, this appointed one, is going to be the one to restore that, that is a daunting task. That is an incredible promise. Who could possibly pull that off? If we're struggling and scrapping and scraping to try to piece, put this back together here in Santa Rosa, what would it take to pull this off? A nation that's soon to be destroyed and exiled, becoming a thriving international center for the knowledge of God. How does that happen? And here is our connection to Advent. You might have been wondering why is this? Why are we talking about this during Christmas time? This is why. Because the arrival of Jesus Christ marks the breaking in of the Micah Four Kingdom in the Micah Three World. That's why. The King. Of the future kingdom has arrived. He's come. He's come early. If you look at the birth narratives of John and Jesus, you can see that the kingdom described in Micah 4 is starting to break in. Do you remember John's story? Where there's this priest who's visited by an angel in the temple. And he's told that his son would be a prophet like Elijah. There hasn't been a prophet for 400 years 400 years of silence, and all of a sudden, some priest in a temple somewhere says, your son's going to be the next one. And John the Baptist is described as turning people's hearts and readying the people to see their king. It says in Luke 1 that that the Lord has, quote, visited and redeemed his people as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Does that sound like Micah 4? Micah 4. This prophet will, quote, give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's in Luke 1. Does that sound like the kingdom in Micah 4? John the Baptist goes on to challenge those who are trusting in being sons of Abraham. Just like Micah challenges the leaders of Israel who are presuming and being in the temple as being their security. He encourages justice for the poor. He says that the coming one will judge like a threshing floor. That sounds like chapter 4. John was the last of the prophets and in true prophet form, gets locked up for giving a a warning, a message of warning, judgment. But then Jesus shows up, this appointed one, the living, breathing word from God, perfect explanation of what God is like, enters the scene. After all this silence and this, this one preparer, now God himself shows up. The king of Micah 4. And people from all different kinds of backgrounds are intrigued by him and are are coming to him and seeking him out. And Jews and Gentiles and men and women and poor and rich. And everyone's, there's kind of a foretaste of what's going to happen that we see in chapter 4. His very first sermon that he gives in his hometown is the claim that he's kind of the spirit-filled deliverer of the poor. It's quoted in Isaiah 61, that God's more than happy to work outside of the people of Israel and work with others. This Jesus is more than a prophet, right? Which is why John said he's not worthy to untie his sandals. His authority is different from everyone else. All the religious leaders aren't sure really what to do with them. He's healing people from their sicknesses. He's resurrecting them from the dead. There's a different thing going on when Jesus arrives. And a small remnant of followers are gathered around him and he has compassion on them because they're what? Sheep without a shepherd. Which is exactly the description in Micah 4, verses 6 and 7. And Jesus, unlike the leaders in Micah 3, gives up his own life for the sheep. He's the one who's crushed. He's the one who's broken to redeem them. He establishes our salvation on the foundation of his atoning blood, not on the backs of the oppressed. And while he doesn't judge when he comes the first time, he will judge when he returns. As it says in Psalm 2, listen to how this is described. It's talking about Jesus. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Listen to this. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The king of Mount Zion, the king of Micah 4 is Jesus Christ. And the, the transforming work of this kingdom doesn't just start when he comes finally the second time. It starts when he comes the first time as a taste, as a sample, as a foreshadowing. And so the kingdom of God breaks in in the person of Jesus. And like Micah, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, folks, God's kingdom is here in part, in a form, in a way. It's actually here. The kingdom that people in, in this time during Micah's day looked so forward to has broken in. And it started and it's begun this work of redemption. This is so important for us to remember as followers of Christ, isn't it? That significant, eternal things are happening around us. That God's kingdom is here. It's advancing. It's moving. There's important stuff going on. And if you don't know Christ this morning, it's really important that you know that too. That his kingdom has already come. His rule has been established. It's expressed in the church and it will be global. You think, well, how does this help us? Let's get a little more practical and look at some implications. Why does it help us to know about this kingdom that's come and this kingdom that's coming? I think it's the same reasons why Micah is describing the coming kingdom to the people of chapter 3. Two reasons. One, to be faithful in the failing kingdom. The life in a corrupted world is different if you know Micah 4. If you know that Christ has come. Life in Sonoma County is different when you know that the kingdom has broken in. So, the first reason is it helps us to be faithful in Micah 3 kind of circumstances, in a failing kingdom. But the second is, it helps us to be hopeful about the coming kingdom, this final version. So let's talk about that first one. How, how does it help us to be faithful in a failing kingdom? Well, it changes our perspective. Now, it's really rare, it's, it's, it's kind of a bummer in a lot of ways, that we never really hear what happens with the messages of the prophets. A lot of times, it's just kind of like listening to one side of a phone conversation, right? Just the prophet announcing judgment on the people, and then that's kind of... You might see the historical results and that kind of thing, but you don't exactly know. Well, this this one's a little bit different, because we actually get to see how Micah's message makes an impact on Judah, on Jerusalem. And listen to Jeremiah chapter 6. Over 100 years later, okay, they're talking. And Jeremiah had been thrown in prison, of course, because he's a prophet, and he was doing his job, and so they <laughs> threw him away. Um, and he was announcing judgment on Jerusalem and Babylon, and he, you know, they said, if you keep doing this, we're going to kill you. And he says, well, that's a bummer, but I'm not going to change the message and the story, and you're just going to add more guilt to your already existing guilt, so do what you want, is kind of what he ends up saying. But then, in Jeremiah 26, it says this, starting in verse 16. You don't have to turn there, you can just listen. Or you can write it down and look it up later just to make sure I'm not making this up. But here's what it says. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micah of Morasheth." Prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, "Thus says the Lord of hosts: Zion shall be plowed as a field; Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height." Verse twelve of what we already read. Quoted. The elder said, "Micah said that." Then it goes on. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced? Against them, but we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. So, what are they saying? They're saying, guys, just because Micah is saying things that are hard to hear doesn't mean we shouldn't listen to him. You remember the hard stuff that Micah said to King Hezekiah? And he listened, and look what happened. God relented of the disaster that hit Jerusalem for more than hundred years. They took Micah's message to heart and disaster was averted. Isn't that amazing? We hear that it made an impact. Now, God is at work in this world in an even clearer way in the coming of Christ, right? I mean, God's kingdom is literally here. And the church of Christ is the primary place that that kingdom is operating, right? And we are to be different from the world, And I say these just as reminders that that we're in a different scenario, right? We know the King of Heaven. We're in relationship with Him. And so we have a different authority. We have God's Word, which is centered on Jesus and taught by the power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel message goes out and collects more people. We don't tamper with God's Word to benefit ourselves. We maintain its purity and we tell it plainly. That's a mark of kingdom people. We live together differently. We interact with each other in a way that's different than the way that the world does. Where we acknowledge wrong and we humbly repent and we forgive one another. We're gladly spent for one another in terms of our time and our energy and our finances. That's great. I'd gladly pour out my life for others. We live together differently because we have the kingdoms come. And because the kingdoms come, the dynamic in our church is different. We treasure the presence of God together. right? As that Ephesians passage said, we've been brought near to God. He hears us, unlike that Micah 3 verse. And because he hears us, we pray to him. We pray together. We say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his path. You might not say it like that, but kind of, you know. We suffer differently. We're confident of God's saving love for us in Christ, and so we're willing to tolerate wrongdoing because we know the kingdom of Micah 4 is on its way. It's already broken in. So yeah, we can, we can be mistreated in this life. That's fine. Micah 4 kingdom is coming. And we worship differently. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, says, But you have come to Mount Zion... And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to the innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We worship differently because the kingdom is broken in. Do you and I live with a sense that God's kingdom is present? That's my question. That's what I want to bug you this week. Do you live with the sense that God's activity in the world is going on? That his kingdom is broken in in the person of Jesus and he's set up these little outposts in these communities that are going to live differently and operate differently and do his will differently for the day when he comes back and rules the world like he rules this church. See, if, you, if we think in those terms then it's, it's, things are just different, right? Our, our willingness to instruct our kids and our willingness to come to things like congregational meetings and our willingness to help people out when they need meals and all that stuff is different because the kingdom of God has come. If it's come and things are different, then they need to look different and be different. They are different. And the way that we think and prioritize and spend and, and run our lives is totally different because the kingdom's broken in. Micah 4 kingdom, has the foretaste are already here. They've already begun. Listen to 2 Peter 3. It says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, meaning this judgment, this final return, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of the Micah 4 kingdom, what sort of people ought we to be? So that's one thing I want to bug you this week. Okay, How is my life different because the kingdom of God broke in in the person of Jesus Christ? The second thing that I think implication that can result from this is that this can cause us to worship Jesus Christ. Because again, he's the one who pulls this. He's the one who makes Micah 4 possible and make it work. And what must he be like if he can bring in a kingdom like this? How much power must he have? How present must he be if he's able to rule and judge with equity over the entire earth? How kind must he be to not lose track of one sheep? See, this, the Micah 4 picture of the kingdom was done by him. It was accomplished by him, and that, te- that instructs our hearts about what he's like. If we can't even find a consultant to piece things back together in one zip code, what must our Messiah be like? In closing, we need to remember that the kingdom of Micah 4 is our destiny. It's weird how preaching messes with you when, you, when you're in text, and you see things everywhere that are related to this. Just in the book of Revelation, as it's describing the closing scene, you hear echoes of Micah 4 in the background. Listen to this. And just take hope in that this is the final kingdom. This isn't just the one day it's going to come. This is actually the kingdom that is described as it's coming. Here's what it says. In Revelation 21, 9 through 11. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Fast forward to chapter 22, 3 through 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no need, they will need no light, or lamp, or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. The kingdom of the world has and will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. How does that change the way that you live this week? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for future hope. Thank you that though we deserved all the judgment of Micah chapter 3, that you still told us Micah chapter 4. Because God, when you make a promise, you keep a promise. And when you say, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and I'm going to bless all the nations through you, Abraham, you do it. And when you say, I'm going to bring a prophet like Moses, and he's going to instruct you in ways that Moses didn't. And when you say, you're going to bring a king like David, who's going to rule in the way that that we're all desiring, you do it. So God, as we wait for that time when you break in and your full kingdom is known by every living, breathing person who is living and also who has ever lived, while we wait for that, God, I pray that you would help us to live for your kingdom. There are significant, substantial, eternal things going on around us. And, oh God, I pray you'd awaken us to them in our lives. Maybe it's the compromise of sin that we just have or numb to. Prick us. Maybe it's just the coldness of heart towards others. When when we see in the in the book of Acts, as we've seen this community of spirit-driven people who are generous because you've been generous to us, oh God, free us of that coldness. As we stutter and hesitate and and aren't sure and and are walking in a lack of confidence and sharing about the truth of the gospel, God loose our tongues. We thank you that we have this promise that the kingdom is coming and that the kingdom has already come. Help us to be citizens of the kingdom here. We want to be faithful to you, God. We want to be useful to you. We want to live in light of reality, not the pipe dream that's around us. Instruct our hearts, change us, renew, and and move things around in us this week as we consider that the kingdom is here.